Hi everyone! Welcome to this series of interviews done by Arkin Digital Health. I'm Nadav Shimoni. I'm leading digital health investments for Arkin. In this series of interviews, we're going to bring leaders and seasoned executives coming from different parts of the U.S. healthcare system, hopefully to allow you, entrepreneurs, investors, and anyone trying to tap into the U.S. healthcare system to gain some insights, some value, some understanding how to do that better. For this episode, we're going to have Dr. John Danaher with us. Dr. Danaher brings a tremendous experience in the medical education and training field with companies like Elsevier, Kaplan, and WebMD. He also held numerous board positions in for-profit and non-for-profit organizations, and also a fellowship position in the White House. In this episode, we try to understand from Dr. Danaher how the medical education and training market responds to the shortage in medical professionals, and what about burnout? What are the opportunities in this market and what are the obstacles? We also had a particular focus on decision support tools per the prevalence of Israeli companies that are trying to offer such solutions. Let's get started. So Dr. John Danaher, it's a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. Nadav, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be associated with you and Arkin. Thank you so much. We have so much potential areas to cover in this conversation. And obviously, education and training is one of them, giving your truly impressive background in, in these fields. But I thought it might be uh, worth just starting with maybe something you encountered or, or experienced that really influenced you in a meaningful way and take it from there. Sure. So, Nadav, if I may, I'm going to give you two examples. So the first one was many years ago when I was a White House fellow, and I worked in George Herbert Walker Bush's presidency. So it was, he was uh, the 41st president. And my assignment was to work for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And what I saw, what I got a firsthand view of, was how government policy affects policy in the private sector. So just to give you a couple of quick examples, Medicare Advantage, the move to manage, comp- manage care and manage competition, um, the pharmacy reimbursement policy, and even, even the focus now on value-based care and, uh, and, and quality outcomes. So that was a wonderful bird's eye view to see how government institutes policies that are, that are implemented in the private sector a few years later. The second, the second example I would give to you which was a very formative and exciting experience, was being on the early management team of WebMD. And um, what was fun about that was seeing how the internet um, disrupted and intermediated legacy healthcare businesses in real time. So those are two examples that were very formative in my thinking and in my career. Terrific. I, I mean, I think it might be a good segue to a first question. I mean... If I can summarize it, you're speaking about regulatory tailwinds and technology tailwinds, you know, to create potential disruption. Yes. And obviously you need, you need a concrete problem, you know, to address with these two. And we are hearing more and more about labor shortages these days, and, and obviously they affect providers in so many ways. How do you see the, the kind of like the education, the training aspects of this problem? How do you see these maybe... approaching, tackling, or, or convening with this problem? It's a hugely important problem. And the labor shortages are not just in the U.S. They're, they're global. 
And, and the shortages of caregivers was accentuated and brought out and exacerbated by COVID. So, you know, you heard a lot of, and, and still hear, a lot of talk about the burnout that's occurring, particularly amongst first-line um, providers. Let's just talk for a minute and focus on, on uh, the workforce shortage in the U.S. for a second. Um, there are forecasted to be some tremendous shortages in physicians and nursing. You know, we have them now, but they're only getting worse in 2025. There's about 100,000 physicians that are forecasted by AAMCE to be the American Association of Medical Colleges. There's um, huge shortages in nursing, you know, 200,000 plus by 2025. So across the board in the U.S., um, there, are, there are significant uh, workforce shortages. The reasons for it are a couple of fold. And so the, the population in the U.S. is getting bigger. We're at 330 million Americans. More of that population is, is becoming elderly. And, and um, you know, as we both know, the elderly have uh, a number of complex. It's not one they usually have complex medical conditions, multiple complex medical conditions. And so if you are a physician or a nurse, you're finding yourself um, increasingly stretched. You're increasingly finding out you've got more work with less resources, et cetera. In terms of the education, what I feel very blessed um, to be doing currently is I'm focusing on solving this problem in the U.S. And I, and I just want to call something out, Nadav, because it's really, it took me years to, to realize this, but it's, it's an important insight, I think. The mission, so if you said who are some of the best nursing schools in the U.S., you might say the University of Washington, the University of Pennsylvania. If you were to say, what are some of the best medical schools in the U.S.? You might say, oh, uh, you know, Harvard or, or Johns Hopkins or something. Realize that of the 160 or so medical schools that are in the U.S., they don't have a mission to be a workforce solution. They don't have a mission. Their mission is not to be a workforce solution. On the nursing side, the same thing is the case with the schools that I mentioned, that they really, they don't have, they're very happy graduating their 100 students a year. And, and then, um, uh, you know, and, and success is often becoming a faculty member, doing research, et cetera. So there's a tremendous opportunity to be a true workforce solution. And that's what the organization that I work for currently does. It's, it's uh, at Talum, and we're the largest educator of doctors, nurses, social workers, veterinarians in the U.S. And I say that to you because it's just we have three starts a year versus the one start. And what we're really seeking to do is to be that workforce solution and to provide uh, a large number of, of healthcare workers in, in, uh, in communities. One last thing that I would say, Nadav, is that, you know, when you, when you look in the U.S., um, it's less that there is a shortage of doctors and nurses in the very affluent areas where they tend to be shortages are in the communities that are lower socioeconomic. And so what we feel extremely uh, proud of is that our graduating physicians, our nurses, et cetera, have a strong commitment to health equity. And that's a situation in, in the U.S. is that there's tremendous inequalities 
in in the in in what in what people who are affluent can access versus versus people who uh, you know are, are less well off. Um, so the last thing I would say is clearly what we're seeking to do whenever we can is to apply technology um, in the forms of of you know content management systems, learning management systems, adaptive learning solutions, etc. To constantly be uh, uh, using and leveraging technology in the education of our students. There are some, there are some regulations that, that prohibit certain amounts of delivery of courseware and others, but uh, whenever we can, we're seeking to leverage technology in the delivery of, uh, in, in the, in the uh, managing of students to ensure their success. Thank you, John. And maybe a follow-up question on this topic. I mean, you can address this shortage in labor in, in different ways, I guess, and you touched a couple of them, but where, where do you see opportunities for, you know, tech-first companies? Do you see them trying to shorten medical training? Do you see them uh, pushing healthcare professionals to practice on top of their license? Do you see them perhaps tackling operational-related burnout? Where do you see the most, you know, prominent opportunities? Yeah, I, I think the Dav... It's all throughout. It's all throughout. You know, we tend to think about medical education in terms of UME, undergraduate medical education, GME, graduate medical education, and CME, the lifelong, once you become a physician, the lifelong learning, the lifelong education um, that you, you do. Certainly, what, what, what you're going to find me most excited about these days is, is data is real-world data, real-world analytics, et cetera. So to be able to get real-world data, real-world analytics on learners, you have to have a platform. You've got to have a learning platform that is serving up uh, content in a, in a structured way and then collecting that data, seeing where students are struggling, seeing where um, uh, you know, students need to spend additional time, et cetera and making sure faculty and, and administrators have access to that data so they can intercede in real time. So I think that there's, a, there's tremendous opportunities in learning platforms, and particularly smart learning platforms, adaptive learning, and um, you know, that use things like AI and machine learning, et cetera, to be able to serve up the content. If you're struggling to have a difficulty uh, mastering a concept, that be able to, for the system, for the platform to be able to immediately serve that up. So, so one area is clearly the area uh, of learning platforms and the data and data analytics that come from it. And that's, that's the case, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, in nursing, for example, what a lot of the companies are doing is, is launching the problem that they're trying to solve in nursing is ensuring that the learner passes what is called the NCLEX exam, the National Nursing License Exam, and the same thing, there's, you can't go on with your medical career unless you pass the USMLE uh, part one. So these are referred to as high stakes exams. And so it's, it's high stakes for the learner, for the student, but it's also high stakes for the schools that are seeking to support the student journey. So learning platforms, data and data analytics is a big hot area. And then the second area that I would talk about is clearly the area of simulation um, is, is just blown up. It's just absolutely blown up in terms of exciting, new, immersive experiences um, that students and faculty uh, have. And so we use, you know, learning uh, these tremendous simulation exercises um, that really, you know, that, that are 
obviating the need for cadavers and anatomy that are that are just really uh, recreating with tremendous tremendous uh, fidelity um, the the you know working on a patient either delivering care or or whatever the task may be. So I think there's extremely interesting things going on um, in in the teach using simulations and immersive experiences and and um, uh, you know 3D and 4D etc to really um, uh, train and educate physicians. And what what does happen to Dove is that in a number of states, you know, or, or most states, they allow you now, whether you're becoming a doctor or nurse, training to be a doctor or nurse, they allow that simulation time to be used um, in place of, of clinical time, in place of being out there with patients, et cetera. They accept the fact that you're you're working on, on simulators, et cetera, as, as just as good or, or better. And, and, you know, one last point, Nadav, the, the, the beauty of, of simulation, and you remember this when, when you were training as a physician, um, when you are doing your rotations as a medical student, for example, you, you don't always see the range of cases that are, you know, if you're doing an, an internal medicine, you know, a rotation or you're doing an OBGYN, you don't see the, the, that you're going to be tested on that may confront you when you're out practicing, et cetera. That's the beauty of simulation that you can really serve up exactly and, and call out the learning the learning lessons, and you're seeing just tremendous things with with stethoscopes and and uh, and again, at the end of the day, it's really all about giving people a real life experience and then collecting the data and, and, and running analytics to see where they're succeeding and where they're where they're struggling. I mean, it seems the opportunity is tremendous, and and to your point, I think we're seeing uh, a large crop of companies trying to offer different solutions. And and I can admit I was I was fortunate or, or not I guess to do the USMLE um, you know part one and the clinical parts as well, and it seems like it can't be you know much easily replaced with a much more efficient tech stack solution both to produce the questions and to enable you to prepare and so on. So I guess you know it begs the question of what what kind of proof you were speaking about you know providing data points. What kind of proof uh, do companies need to provide to their customers, you know, to universities, to academic medical centers in order for them to be receptive of their solutions? Yeah. You know, I think, um, Nadav, for various reasons, the marketplace um, has become very accepting of technology solutions. And, and there's a number of reasons for that, but I'll just throw out um, a couple of them. There is a significant shortage of clinical space and clinical opportunities for third and fourth year medical students, but also for, for nursing students. Um, but, and I also know it you know, for other, other ancillary providers, for PTs, OTs, et cetera, getting, getting clinical spots is, is, a, uh, is a tremendous challenge. It's a tremendous challenge. So the first thing is, I think that um, if you're the administrator at a, at a medical school or a nursing school, and, and you know that the state regulations and the national accreditation, et cetera, will allow you to do it, I think it, 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 makes, it makes life a lot easier. It's, it's much more accessible. It's much easier in this, in this environment of shortages. And then the, the true test, I think, Nadav, of convincing people is to show them, once again, the data, is to show them that students who use this simulation, 
go on to pass the NCLEX or to go on to pass the USMLE at the same rate or higher than students who, who don't. And there's a number of studies out there that have looked at this with various learning technologies. So it's a, it's a very exciting um, area. But again, it comes down to the data that demonstrates that indeed um, the outcomes are as good or better than through traditional face-to-face you know, uh, uh, pedagogy. Terrific. Perhaps another question which relates to a couple of these points you just mentioned, analytics and, and, and you know, showing the outcomes and so on. I think that throughout your time in Elsevier, you've uh, touched the area of decision support system quite a bit, and Elsevier is doing a lot of things in this area. You know, people are familiar with Elsevier as a large publisher, but obviously it's a much bigger organization than just, you know, publisher. What can you share with us about decision support tools? I mean, in Israel, there are so many companies who are trying to develop to produce different decision support tools from different reasons. But we see a lot of challenges around, you know, penetra- market penetration. Um, and again, customers being not so receptive, not so willing to pay and, and so on. So I'm, I'm very curious to learn from your experience. I am a huge um, supporter and believer in clinical decision support. And, and, and it's really for two reasons. And I'll, I'll go into those two. Um, you know, it always is good to step back and say, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the problem we're trying to solve with, with CDS, with clinical decision support? The problem we're trying to solve is unintended variability in the delivery of care. And, and you know, I mean, I'll say this kind of jokingly, um, if there's a patient with metastatic breast cancer, there's 25 oncologists, there'll be 27, you know, different opinions on, on how best to do that. So one of the things about clinical decision support is that the literature and the evidence base is changing so quickly in a number of fields that companies who do clinical decision support, it's incumbent upon them to be constantly upgrading, refining, et cetera, so that that the CDS, the software that they're providing, is is absolutely state-of-the-art and represents the most recent thinking about how how things do. And and you know, as, as a fellow physician, there's tons of studies out there that say how physicians practice 15 years later, 20 years later, et cetera, is often predicated on, on what they learned in medical school, what they learned in their residency, et cetera. So it's a challenge always being current. And one of the benefits of CDS is that they're providing current evidence-based medicine. And, you know, it, it's, not, it's not that difficult, perhaps, in areas of treating pneumonia or treating various things. But in terms of, of the cancer treatments and cancer therapies that are changing very, very rapidly, um, it's even the, the foremost oncologists are benefit from having, having CDS. The, um, the second thing about CDS, which is really what I get very, very excited about. So not only does, and, you know, in the government, obviously, if you, you, there's, there's a number of um, uh, regulations in the U.S., one of them is PAMA, for example. And so what PAMA is, is, you know, uh, the government requires actually um, to use uh, radi- radiology decision support. And the idea there is the government's trying to reduce all the unintended or all the unnecessary x-rays and imaging studies, et cetera, and just make sure that what they're reimbursing for with Medicare um, is, is, is what the state of the art is. 
So, so there's financial reasons to, in the particularly in the U.S., to adopt CDS and to utilize CDS. But what there also is 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 a realization that when you use CDS in an EMR, when you're when you're using electronic medical record, what you're getting the output of it is structured patient data. You're getting structured patient data. So what happens is when you run analytics on structured patient data, you can have much more meaningful correlations, insights, et cetera, than unstructured. If you have 25 breast cancer oncologists treating in 25 different ways or 27 different ways, et cetera, trying to analyze that data for correlations, for uh, associations becomes very, very difficult. So the beauty, again, is, is, is standardizing the delivery of care and achieving quality outcomes, but then also using that data, combining it with other data sets, et cetera, running analytics on it and figuring out how at the individual patient level you can provide the best care. And there's lots of reasons for resistance, but I think that really the movement is towards CDS, implementing CDS into the workflow um, and, and then getting the data, data analytics and analyzing it. Thank you. I, I think this is really helpful. Um, but I, I would like to kindly, you know, push a bit forward. And, and I mean, there are, as I've mentioned, a significant amount of, of Israeli companies trying to develop and sell uh, clinical decision support tools. Some are, are less tech savvy, some are, are more. And I think many of these companies um, sometimes struggle, you know, with market penetration and, and, and ramping up their sales. I'm sure you've you've encountered um, through your time developing and selling clinical decision support tools, um, you know, some challenges, some obstacles, and, and obviously you figure out some ways to overcome them. I would love to hear your take on that. Our purpose here is, is to provide value for our listeners, so hopefully, you know, give them something to work with. So, Nadav, I um, have been blessed to not only work with companies in the Arkin portfolio, but to work with um, uh, other Israeli startups and, and early stage companies, etc. And um, in particularly in the in the healthcare in the HIT space. And you know, I, I uh, as you know, and had the pleasure of seeing you two two and a half years ago, or, or prior to COVID. Uh, perhaps it's longer now, but um, uh, you know, I can unequivocally say again. Realize that I'm uh, originally. I did my training as a physician and went to business school at Stanford. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, a Silicon Valley uh, uh, child. Um, the innovation, the creativity um, in, in, in Israeli HIT is second to none. It's, it's the best. And part of it is, um, you know, having access to Khalid's and, and Maccabe's data sets you know, and the fact that that the data sets have been digitized for, you know, I forget whether it's the last 30 or 40 years, et cetera. You know, I, I won't embarrass anyone, but I've got my role models, people I admire who are doing some some just amazing, amazing things in the area of AI and radiology, in the area of data sets at Clalit that are making access to large pharmaceutical companies you know, in return for the COVID vaccine, et cetera. So you, I think you can know who some of those 
those people I admire so much who are, who are really at the forefront. And, and there's just so many, so many tremendous innovators. You know, what is the, the first challenge for an Israeli early stage HIT company? It's to capture a major market. And major market is usually defined as the U.S. or Europe. And so that's really making headways, demonstrating, you know, you're having success in one of those markets is, is usually a prerequisite to for success. It's wonderful to have a reference account at an Intermountain or at a Mayo or, or a Cleveland Clinic. But really what what you really have to do, and those often take a tremendous amount of work to get up, to get going, et cetera. And they have huge reputational effects, but really the challenge is, is how do you scale? And sometimes the amount of energy and resources and funding that goes into, you know, pleasing one of those 800 pound uh, entities is really not where you want to go. I mean, it's great, you know, it's a great reference account, et cetera, but what you really have to figure out is how do you scale? And what you quickly realize is, Selling into those marquee places, mayor, you know, they have long sales cycles. They, uh, you know, they require lots of attention. They're very demanding, et cetera. And it's often more the medium-sized hospitals or the medium-sized health systems, et cetera, that don't have marquee names, that it's easy, it's quicker to scale and quicker to, to get up to speed. So that's one observation. Um, you know, these, these marquee accounts come with pluses and minuses. The second thing I, I, I think, which I always think is, is very, um, is really important, is, is moving to those markets. And what you see, and, and again, I can name a number of people who I have tremendous respect from, um, have moved from Israel to, you know, where I've seen it most often is they, they go to, uh, you know, New York, or they go to the East Coast, etc. But I think having a senior executive, um, uh, you know, in the U.S. and and it's very hard. It's very hard to manage and grow if if you don't. I mean, it's great. You know, the first hire, the first hire, early stage Israeli companies usually do is they get ahead of sales, U.S. sales, and that is a flip of the coin. I'm just going to be very frank. It can be a flip of the coin because um, you know finding really good salespeople is hard, even when you're a really well established company with lots, you know, you're, you're very mature company, even getting great salespeople is hard. And if you're an early stage Israeli company or, or you know, medium stage in, in all your operations, everything's in Israel and trying to, um, to scale in the U.S., it's hard unless you've got a significant presence in the U.S. And again, when you, when you hire, when you're based in Tel Aviv, say, and you're hiring um, somebody in, in New York to begin scaling and building up your, your uh, sales force, it's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot whether you get somebody good who can really do it, et cetera. But I think you reduce the, the, the chances of failure if a senior executive from the company is established in the U.S. and, and can meet people and, and build out the, uh, the sales force and, and the rest of the team. So that's the, you know, that's the second observation around that. It's a very, very exciting time in it's as, in all the years that I've been in health information technology. I think this is the time that, to me, is the most exciting in industry. 
you know, I, I said to you earlier, you know, I love being at the, the dawn of the internet and seeing how traditional businesses were disintermediated. I think that what I would say to, to early and mid-stage Israeli companies is it's all about the data and it's all about the data analytics. So you may be solving one problem for a customer, but realize that the, the, um, what, what, what you have the potential to create is, is to be able to monetize. You know, the worst thing, you know, just to say, Nadav, which, which you know so well, is it, it's much, much easier to have a, a cloud-based SaaS offering platform offering that's got a annual re, recurring revenue and, and then also, oh, by the way, spins off data, data analytics. Transactional businesses are, are difficult. And I've been in a lot of trans, I'm in one now, and it, it's difficult because you are much more susceptible to, to the, uh, uh, you know, to, the, to what happens in the world events, et cetera, with COVID, with, with a whole bunch of things. So I'll stop there. But, but I think that the, the Israeli companies that I've seen succeed, and, and I think there's more than ever, and they're, they're truly, uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, ML, a, you know, natural language, NLP, AI, et cetera, the, the work that they're doing is, is, is as exciting as any I've seen. And it just really becomes a question of how best do you scale, how best you capture markets, you know, how best you um, build out your business. John, this is so important. I feel uh, obliged to kind of like repeat the three points you just mentioned. One is, you know, where do you start? Do you start with these 800 pounds of organizations like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic or, you know, just trying to tap into the main market, which is, I guess, the majority of the market and there are pros and cons on, on each side of the equation. And I think this is definitely a question entrepreneurs need to consider. The second part is, you know, around being in the US and not just trying to work remotely. I can admit that we're trying to practice what we're preaching for in that perspective and I'm, I'm moving to the US as you, as you know. I cannot underscore how important it is to be kind of like in the market where the action is. And the third is to bring the data and, and provide the concrete evidence, especially in these days when the conversation keeps going back to uh, the clinical and the business evidence and, and how can you really provide a concrete proof your solution works. And, and perhaps, I mean, this can be a segue to a last question and we are running out of time here. What are the areas you think entrepreneurs should avoid? I mean, it is important to know where you should, uh, you know, operate, but perhaps there are certain areas which entrepreneurs should shy away from? Yeah. So a couple of things, Nadav, and I'll, and I'll talk about two or three of them. So obviously, you know, in the U.S., and I suspect globally, SPACs have, have fallen out of favor. So, so there's a number of healthcare companies that uh, went public through SPACs that are not performing as well as, 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 as head hope. So that's, you know, so I think people are being skeptical about going public through a SPAC these days. The second thing is there has been an exuberance. There has been definitely an exuberance in deals that have gotten done six months ago, et cetera, would never get done at the same valuation as, as you know, what's currently happening. I think that there's, you know, one area that I think it's not so much not to be in it, but you have to have um, a trans, trans, transition strategy. 
And that's in the area of, um, uh, you know, of, of SEO, SEM, um, digital health media. And what I'm getting at is, um, you know, there's someone I was on talking with someone who's, who's deeply immersed in this, and this, she's one of the leaders in this field. She said to me, she said, you know, realize there's only so many blockbuster drug launches a year, you know, connoting that those were the main drivers that for digital media. And, and so what I, what I would say is I think that, that um, SEO, SEM companies are, I, I think they're transitioning. And I think the ones that realize that they're sitting on um, data, you know, if they're if they're SEO, if they're digital media companies that that deliver to to um, uh, uh, providers, to physicians, or their digital consumer digital media media companies, what I what I what I've been surprised about, Nadav, what I've been very surprised about is the people who are in those traditional digital media companies. Um, are just in the early stages of appreciating and understanding the data that they're sitting on. So, so what they what they tend, in my opinion, not to be as well versed on is the advances that organizations have made in, in the area of interoperability, in the area of being able to access data, utilize data, et cetera. And so when you talk to these digital media people, what they tend to say is, oh, well, that was tried you know, 20 years ago by patients like us, and they weren't able to, to uh, you know, monetize the data, something like that. So what happens is if you're very, very focused on digital media and, and sponsorship, pharma sponsorship, life sciences sponsorship, et cetera, you may not fully appreciate the advances that have occurred in the area of consumer data, provider data, and how, and, and, and this, is the, this is the big uh, disconnect, you know, what's happening in pharma and life sciences now, in, in my opinion, is that data is less or it's still being used as much as ever by sales and marketing teams, by the commercial teams. In, in, uh, but what's happening is that the researchers, the researchers in pharma and life sciences and, and the R&D, they are appreciating that real world data, real world evidence can accelerate their drug development process and their drug approval process with organizations like the FDA. So I guess what I'm, I'm wary, you know, of paid media uh, companies, unless they've got this transition strategy of how they're going to um, unlock the, they're sitting on these jewels that they don't have the expertise and the knowledge to really unlock into and to take advantage of. So I'll stop there. That's, the, you know, avoiding SPACs, you know, and really, traditional digital media companies, because I just don't think that that's, that's where the value is, is going. Understood. It seems like we can keep talking, you know, for a long period of time and having a conversation that started with medical education and training, continued to the clinical decision support system and ended with pharma sales and marketing is obviously a time well spent. Dr. John Danaher, it was a true pleasure having you with us. Thank you again for joining and for your time. Thank you, Dada. It's an honor. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and